0: Welcome back. It's Swing Pass Week 6 Preview Pod here on Thursday, June 2nd. I've got my co-host Daniel Cohen with me here. Daniel, a big make-or-break weekend here as a lot of teams undergo double headers. There's 14 games on the slate this weekend, the biggest weekend of the season in terms of number of games we have over the course of the weekend. We already actually had a game in week six last night on Wednesday as Montreal faced off against the Outlaws in Ottawa. Montreal snapping their three-game losing streak and getting a 24-21 win over their fellow countrymen. Montreal kind of establishing itself firmly as the top Canada team right now, and they currently sit in third place in the East. But as we will get to on this show... Both Boston and Philadelphia very much in the race for that third and final playoff seed in the East will have big tests in Week 6. We've also got Carolina going on the road and facing both Texas teams. It's it's not necessarily the biggest in terms of top-team rivalry games this weekend, but it feels nonetheless like a very important weekend throughout the league. Yeah, I mean, there's, what, four doubleheaders? You got Boston,
1: Carolina, Oakland is doing is the first team that's doing the Salt Lake, Colorado doubleheader, and LA is doing the Portland, Seattle, Pacific Northwest doubleheader. So, yeah, there's a ton at stake here, I feel like, especially for teams like Boston and a lot going on in the Central Division this week, too, with Madison-Pittsburgh, Minnesota-Indy. These are all big games that, feel like must win games or at least like for Boston I feel like they have to split games on this road trip to really stay in position and have a chance for that third spot there there's a lot going on it's I think it's the biggest weekend as far as number of games we've had so far too with 14 I oh, guess that's what yeah, I said 14 there's yeah, 14 including <laughs> including yesterday right
0: Yeah, no, it's it's the the biggest weekend of the season, period. I don't think there's another 14-gamer. Man, I hope not. Yeah. I'm going to have to go through all this video. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a lot. Yeah, it's going to be quite the load. So why don't we start with the Texas 2-step that the Flyers are going through. They will be traveling to face Dallas tomorrow night in the Friday feature, the first matchup between Dallas and the Flyers since they met in the 2019 South division championship game. That game was the third straight time Dallas defeated Carolina in the South division championship. They won three straight years against the Flyers. But as we've talked about a bunch and as has been talked about generally much has changed since the last time these two (laughs) rivals met Dallas has undergone pretty much a top-down change in their roster, although there are a few vets still left over from the the old rivalry between these two teams. And then Carolina is, of course, the reigning champions. They are 4-0 so far in 2022. They appear to have the deepest roster in the league, um, maybe sliding up New York now with some of New York's additions, which we can get to also uh, at some point in this show as they will be activating uh, the Callahan winner, John Randolph, as well as a uh, recently announced Jabron uh, Miser returning to the team. Anyways, not to digress too far. Um, <laughs> Carolina and Dallas. Uh, this will be an interesting, I think, emotional game for both teams because, again, Carolina has sort of rewritten their history without Dallas being involved, which is really interesting To say at this point in kind of the grander narrative of the AUDL, you know, so much of the South Division for years was defined by Flyers versus Dallas or, you know, what used Mm -hmm. to be the Roughnecks and Dallas owned them in the postseason to the extent that the Flyers would get, you know, 10 plus win seasons and it didn't matter because there was always this giant question mark of, well, how are they going to fare against Dallas in the postseason? And with divisional realignment and Dallas moving to the West in 2021 and Carolina going on their championship run, the Flyers sort of rewrote their entire history without the involvement of their greatest nemesis. It's it's
1: pretty unsatisfying
0: to me. I, I don't know how <laughs> no, the team I, feels about it. I am too.
1: And even, even this game, like, like yeah, they're meeting for the first time since that 2019 South Division Championship game where Dallas, of course, beat Carolina. But, like, even this, you know, Carolina does beat Dallas in the regular season. Like, they were beating them in the regular season in 2019 and, 20, I think, 2018, 2017. Like, there's, there was never so much debate there of, like, whether they could beat them during the regular season. Yeah, like you said, it was just that playoff matchup that seemed to be the biggest hurdle for the Flyers and yeah now it's just like I don't know we have a Dallas team that is literally at the bottom of the league in offensive efficiency right now just a couple points better than what Detroit was last year and it just feels so it's so night and day this is such a different Dallas team than than the juggernauts they once were And yeah, I'm just, I'm a little, I'm a little bummed. There was never like a, I don't know, like a big grand finale, like Flyers finally beat Dallas in the playoffs, then go on to go to championship weekend and win the title. Like it just feels a little weird South narrative wise that
0: all of a sudden Dallas is back in the division, but they're just nowhere near what they were before. How even more fever dreamy is it that Jay fruit and John Nethercutt who used to go head to head in these matchups <laughs> fruit with Dallas, yeah. and Nethercutt with the flyers are now combining forces in Colorado on an expansion team. If you like hit your head and passed out somewhere in 2019 and like woke up now, you would <laughs> you'd have a lot of catching up to do as far as like what exactly happened here. But yeah, it, it feels transformatively different and it is, um, As far as how this matchup is going to play out, Henry Fisher and Eric Taylor are back in the lineup for Carolina after missing a few games. Uh, Carolina has been dealing with a variety of absences and injuries, and it doesn't really matter for the Flyers because they just seem to be able to rotate in pieces as needed. And those pieces are star-level performers. Obviously, Alex Davis has been a tremendous fill-in for this team, as Anders Jungst is dealt with a lot of injuries. Uh, I believe he has some sort of PCL strain or something that's going to be keeping him out until August. So their main Mm. goal scorer from last year and their uh, all-AUDL nominee, Alan LaViolette, who's also out for the season, are not active for the foreseeable future for the Flyers. And so it's been especially, I think, impactful that they've been without fisher and eric taylor in the lineup as well and yet as we've said a moment ago Carolina's still undefeated alex davis is eating on offense uh Matthew johannes and Sol yannick have the backfield on lock jacob fairfax uh proves to be a veteran leader on this team now with how he plays he was so good and kind of stabilizing the ship in their game against Austin in week four when they trailed early Fairfax made a series of plays towards the end of the first quarter to kind of I think keep spirits afloat um, and he's obviously you know a premier playmaker in this league and has been for years he, he just sometimes feels like he gets lost in the shuffle of this Flyers lineup and without Fisher and uh, Taylor in the lineup and without LaViolette and Junks due to injury, it feels kind of nice to be reminded of, oh yeah, Jacob Fairfax is that dude. He's, he's been great. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that just
1: to think that they have been missing Fisher and Taylor for the past couple games and Junks too, but really did not miss a beat and they, they took down Austin without those guys and now they're playing Dallas and austin on saturday with those new pieces they will be missing their nc state guys trevor lynch and dylan hawkins who filled in super nicely on the offensive side in that game against austin i think i I don't know is this the week we see eric taylor shift back to offense do you think i feel like there's maybe a hole there that i could see him plugging he's been primarily d-line all season last year it was a lot of back and forth just kind of depended on what the roster was but down the stretch was very much a d-line player still feels like he brings a ton of offensive abilities so i i wonder if we see carolina tinkering with the lineups a bit and shifting him more to o-line
0: i think you're still gonna see a balance i mean you look at who they have for d-line handlers uh they have seth weaver elijah long uh suraj madaraju can handle the disc a bit. Um, Grayson Sanner, if they so choose to put him on D-line, can be a very good counter-attacking thrower. You know, I Connor Russell has shown an ability at times to be good in transition, I think, at taking shots. He's not the most precise passer, but I think he can find a rhythm very quickly when, you know, flyers are looking to kind of do a jailbreak score off of a turn. Um, I, You know, again, it just... It, comes down to what it always comes down to with this Flyers team is that they always just seem to have pieces and it doesn't really limit them in any capacity to, to say like oh Eric Taylor needs to play on defense you know they, they'll right. figure it out as the games go along and they'll adjust and use him where it's most needed I think you know Mike Denardis and this coaching staff I think have earned the reputation of being the best in-game adjustment strategizing group in the league. You know, that's how they won a championship last year was that they just kind of out X'd and out owed opposing teams in a live game environment and this lineup allows them to do that. So I I want to
1: shift over to Dallas. I obviously Carolina is just <laughs> loaded on both sides of the disk. Dallas I I would say is is the opposite. They're they're struggling on both sides offensively, defensively. There doesn't seem to be much consistency in the lineup. They are adding back Griffin Miller, who's making his season debut this week, which I, I think brings a, a nice, you know familiar presence on the D-line and, and hopefully some, some defensive stability and another defensive playmaker. But I guess in your mind, Adam, what, what has to go right for Dallas? Or I guess what's the biggest thing they should focus on for this battle with Carolina? What's their best route to, I don't want to say winning
0: the game, but but staying competitive for a full four quarters? I think keeping the disc kind of out of just a handler space where they're caught swinging against the Flyers' um, handler defenders. Like, I just think that if they get caught almost completing a lot of passes or trying to work out Long drives against Carolina Flyers are just going to eat them over the course of the game. Um, it's and I, what, I worry it's about what Carolina, that. I, I feel does like, does against good offenses. And I feel like with Jimmy Zura and Brandon Malachek asked to take so much of the load in this Dallas offense that it it's going to be tricky to find other ways to balance around them because I I, I think that Dallas is pretty specialized as far as who plays where in their roles.
1: I I was going to say, I was going to point to those two guys, Malachek and Zura. I feel like they've been like, that's, that's kind of how their offense has run to this point. Like it is, it is mostly being run from the backfield. There's not a ton of continuation looks going on. It does like, it seems like they don't really have a, a go-to midfield hybrid. Like you see on a lot of other teams like a Kyle Hanke. that can sh- like a Kyle Hanky yeah or like like <laughs> any of the sole cutters really guys that are capable of continuing to the other cutters like it feels like Dallas is very very much getting some some chunk gains downfield but then often resetting it back right to up, those right handlers up. that that seem to be shouldering most of the load so yeah, uh, yeah it, it feels like it feels like an opportunity that Carolina could just shut down those guys and, and the Dallas offense could be completely lost.
0: Yeah, I just, I think they need to, you know, as simple as it is, keep the disc moving. If they slow down and let Carolina's defense set or start to read and react, you you see what happens. They get Callahan's, you know, that's what Justin Allen did against Austin. <laughs> right. He just did a read and react from 20 yards away and jumped a lane route. Um, I, I do also see that Carolina will be absent Noah Saul, who is once again just been a quietly amazing part again of a versatile lineup where he can spell on either offense or defense um i think that they're going to be missing him over the course of two games but again they they have so many pieces that can sort of float the load so to speak or or take on more uh role or more completions i should say um but maybe that's a good transition to move into the Saturday Night Game of the Week matchup against Austin, which is a rematch, of course, of the game we've been referring to from week four, where Austin took an early lead on the Flyers in Carolina, but Flyers persevered over the full four quarters, sort of found a way to get into Austin's offensive rhythm later in the game, get a few crucial breaks in the second half and come out with the win. Now the, the soul get ready to host The Flyers in the second game of a back-to-back and noticeably in June, Texas heat. Um, I'm really interested to see if Austin will maybe employ some looks that they didn't in that first matchup. It felt like maybe the soul at a certain point were saving some of their opportunities for this rematch at home. Um, And as, as far as that goes, if Austin doesn't win this matchup, it really feels like, they're behind the eight ball as far as getting a playoff spot in the South this year. Right. It it
1: feels about of a must win as you can have this early in the season. Like, yeah, of course, Austin would only be two and three if they drop this game and, and technically could, I guess, attempt to win out or, or win the majority of their remaining games. And maybe Sneak into that second playoff spot, but I, yeah, just based on what we know about Carolina and Atlanta so far, and what we know about Austin's remaining schedule, it feels like this is this is kind of the the moment for them. It also feels like their best bet to beat Carolina because I think I think they play them one more time this season, but it's at Carolina again. So really, I mean, the, the stage this weekend being the second game of a back to back for carolina for whatever that's worth this season we have seen teams go undefeated on multiple doubleheader road trips i, I don't know what it is it, maybe it doesn't road seem teams. to it, yeah it doesn't seem to matter as much this year i feel like in the past we we view that second game as super tough uh, but you know right now i i feel like if there's a time to beat carolina it it kind of feels like this might be it uh, and also looking ahead at the solo schedule they actually don't play Carolina a third time they they have a loaded schedule against Dallas they play Dallas three more times this season so it's just two meetings between Austin Carolina and Austin Atlanta so obviously if they can't win any of those four games I, I feel like they're not going to make the playoffs so we'll we'll see I think this Austin team is definitely capable of winning this game. I just I, I saw what happened in Carolina at a less than full strength Carolina roster. Their their depth continues to shine, and it, it even overcomes the early miscues that we saw against Austin. Like Austin had those three first quarter breaks, and it felt like that's that's the start that they exactly wanted and could roll with and, and ride that momentum throughout the game, but. Carolina never goes away. They can be down a handful of goals in the second quarter, and they're just going to push back every single game. So it's it's going to be on Austin to just like keep the foot on the gas pedal and really not slow up at any point during this game. And then I also always come back to turnovers. I, I've yet to see a game from Austin where they're under the 15 turnover mark, and that feels like the point you have to get to if you want to make sure you can compete and possibly defeat the reigning champs who, who seem to have between 10 and
0: 15 turnovers most games they play. So if you're Austin, do you think you kind of go for an overload strategy where you're comfortable turning it into a turnover game? Because, Austin, you know, Carolina might be most susceptible to being influenced into playing a game they don't want to the second game of a back-to-back in Texas heat against the soul. You know, like I feel like it's yeah. the opportune time to get the Flyers out of their comfort zone.
1: Yes, I I agree. I just don't know how easy that is to to turn it into a, a semi-high turnover game for the Flyers unless they just get some some nice Texas wind. And it starts to get messy. It's, you know, again, going back to the only way to beat New York is just hope for terrible conditions. That will that will level out the playing fields. But if Carolina is able to put together their normal, efficient game, they just
0: seem as tough an opponent, opponent to beat as any in the league right now. I think one of the matchups that's going to be problematic for Austin is Carolina's height, especially with the return of Fisher. Uh, in years past, in 2019, when these two teams played, I remember Fisher and Fairfax giving the soul a lot of fits, especially for their Mm -hmm. ability to sort of interchange and uh, huck off of one another. You know, one can kind of come under and the other can stretch deep. Um, that, That will be a big problem for Austin to figure out, especially if Mick Walter doesn't play again for them. It felt like in that week four road trip, uh, to Carolina and Atlanta, Austin really struggled to limit opposing Huck attacks. Like they were just sort of surrendering a bunch of deep shots over the top.
1: Yeah, definitely. i I could see a big game for Fisher. I assume he's gonna draw the Ethan Pollock matchup. and and to me, that's that's a pretty significant mismatch in favor of Fisher. Like Fisher's quicker and faster than Ethan Pollock. He, Pollock has looked a, a little bit slow in his return to action in the UDL. And I just feel like there's, it's hard to replace a guy like Mick Walter, who I think is still dealing with injuries. So he's not expected to play. Uh, the Mick Walter Henry Fisher matchup was a good one when we saw that in 2019, but I, I just feel like Fisher just kind of has an athleticism bump over Pollock. And I feel like they're gonna,
0: they could easily put that to the test uh, repeatedly throughout this game. So one of the things we saw in the last matchup between these two teams is that Austin got off to a white hot start. It looked like they had all the momentum. Their offense was converting. What seemed to be pretty easy drives. They were doing a lot of weave and possession drives and sort of just going crisscross up the field and finding, you know, sort of open side as far as they could to one side and then working it back break side and really easily punching it in. But then as the game progressed, it felt like they got sort of disconnected from their downfield continuation space and that they were trapped sort of in swinging motions. And that's where Mm -hmm. the Flyers defense pounced all over them. What do you think Austin will do in the second matchup to sort of prevent that from happening? How can they keep that offensive momentum that was so crucial to their hot start?
1: Yeah, it's tough. Like I, I don't know if it's if it's just guys sort of wearing down over the course of a game or just getting less involved. But I, I agree with you that at the beginning of the game, it looked like they were very flowy and in their element with getting guys like Broadback, Henke, and Mark Evans super involved. They they stall out a bit at times when like they only have two pure handlers on the O-line in Paul Starkle and Jake Radak. And yeah, I feel like there are just times where like it's unclear between Henke Swiatek and Mark Evans, like who needs to come back as that second reset option. And I I don't know what the solution is really other than just a, maybe a slight shift in mentality and, you know, more clearly designating a guy that's closest to the disc to be that reset option and and making sure that they key in on that throughout the game because if you do like if you don't have a second reset option against Carolina even if you do sometimes that is where they can really clamp down and make offenses uncomfortable like they the soul had a handful of them where they were able to get out of those situations but that's the other thing like over time I feel like the the Carolina pressure just ramps up gradually throughout the game and as as guys get tired late in the game and maybe the Offensive strategy doesn't stay as sound as it once was. That's when
0: Carolina can just, you know, punch opponents in the mouth. It feels like one of the things that was interesting that the Soul did with their lineup in that game was play Evan Swiatek on defense to begin, and he got a couple of break scores throughout that game in his D line role when they would get a turn, and he would sort of get to, you know, initiate as a striker in the counterattacking offense. Um, I'm -hmm. wondering if they're going to do similar sorts of tweaks to their lineup and see if they can find some kind of mismatch with Carolina on the second game of a back-to-back. You know, like, it feels like they need to sort of press the issue of who's feeling a little tired, who can we sort of run a little bit. I think last time it felt like Carolina got to play that game a little bit later in their their comeback, you know, it, it felt like they were picking apart where they could sort of pressure the most. And, you know, Austin having to prepare for a game the next day felt like they might've been reserving a little bit. Whereas in this environment, it feels like Austin just needs to kind of pull out all the brakes and just find whatever they can to destabilize Carolina's rhythm. You know, like they just, right. They let Carolina just sort of win the last three quarters. Carolina scored, Nine goals in the second quarter. Eight goals in the fourth. You know, they they closed out both halves really, really well offensively. And it feels like the soul have to figure out a way to disrupt that. So do you feel like the key,
1: the key to the soul is more so stopping the Flyers' offense than
0: it is converting against their defense? I don't even know if it's stopping. It's getting them to... It's sort of like how they had them at the beginning of the last game where Flyers were sort of taking a few ill-advised shots deep. They weren't in rhythm hucks. They were sort of later in a stall count or a little bit too ambitious. You know, just just getting Carolina a little bit out of that comfort zone because when the Flyers are in rhythm, they're champions. You know, like they, they right. do yeah. just win out against teams because they can convert at a rate where – you can't slow them down. I mean, throughout the rest of that game, they completed 14 of 17 hucks against Austin. 82%. That's a ridiculous rate, you know? And I feel like the three three hucks they missed were maybe in like the first five minutes of the game. I'm I'm
1: thinking more about it. The fact that this is a doubleheader in the second game of a doubleheader, like, is that necessarily a detriment to Carolina? They're a team that... Like you said, that when they're in rhythm, they're a championship team. I feel like they they carry rhythm and momentum from game to game. And, and thinking that they're they're playing this Dallas team, that they could roll right through. I don't know. Does it almost feel like a bit of a warm up game for for the real game on Saturday? Like I wonder if it just gets them a little bit more comfortable and and allows them to try out some different rotations just in advance of this Austin game and maybe better prepare them. In a way, like I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's better that they have a doubleheader as opposed to just a one-off game versus Austin, but I'm almost thinking it it might cancel out. Considering this is this is Texas, you know, getting used to the heat could be argued uh, to be an advantage for Carolina playing the second game. I don't know. Just thinking more about it.
0: I think Austin has to stress test. That's what I'm saying. Like I think expecting Carolina to come into the game in rhythm is absolutely what they should anticipate and so you've got to say like okay do it for four quarters show us you can do it we'll run as hard as we've ever ran we'll give you the best game you prove it you know like i it feels like that's what they should do like they can't just you can't just say like oh we'll play a defensive game against carolina after they get a game to warm up like you say like that's been proven to not be the case as being effective for home team this year like road teams have Won a lot in 2022. Evan Lepler wrote all about it this week in the Tuesday toss. And especially after week five, where, you know, what did the road teams go eight and three or whatever, or five and three. Um, I think it was six and two, six and two. Yeah. Yeah. Road teams are scorching hot this year. So yeah, you can't just anticipate you'll be able to, you know, kind of play a precision game against a Flyers team with a warm up the night before right right that's what I'm thinking
1: how uh, the last game they played was sort of underratedly high scoring like I didn't expect it to be high scoring but it was 27-24 Carolina over Austin what's your I guess what's your over under prediction for this game and then I'll, I'll ask you for your score prediction if you'd like to share it
0: yeah I would put it at like 48 I think both teams are going to fill it up. Again, I think both offenses are good enough. I think the Soul had I know you're on them about not being a truly elite team or whatever because they can't get under 15 turnovers, but they yeah, are a lot quite there. They are a lot better this year than last year and they haven't committed For 20 sure. turnovers in a game this year. So, you know, I think Flyers being in rhythm, Austin having a lot on the table as far as wanting to win this game and having the pieces to do it. Um. Yeah, I think this is a big opportunity. The, the other big question I have is like, is this going to be the Kyle Hankey game? He's played extremely well this year, and his numbers are some of his most efficient, but I haven't fe- felt like he's had, you know, his like highlight game. The game yeah, where he sort he, he hasn't had like, like a know, takeover game, and it feels like he has one of those at least once or twice every single year. It used to be when he mm-hmm. was on Austin, it would be against Dallas. He would have some big game against the interstate rivals, and then last year for Dallas, it was sort of like in the bigger games. You know, he had that big weekend While game with the cast against San Diego, yeah. where he had the three 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 game of assist goals and blocks. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like. If there was an opportunity in the game of the week to sure, sort of get this, you know, almost franchise-defining win against the reigning champs, like this would be it. Yeah, and like what you said about Swiatek
1: before starting last game on defense, and I think he played maybe seven total D points in that game. Nine. Nine. Yeah. Wow. So I like. I'm not. I'm not necessarily advising that they move him over to more full-time D-line, but I am wondering if that maybe provides a bit more clarity on offense and allows a guy like Kyle Henke to more comfortably take over the game, whether he's shifting into the backfield more to help out on those resets, like I mentioned before, or taking over downfield as the initiating cutter. Maybe they are just a little too offense heavy at this point and could afford to switch some guys over. But I I agree. I'm I'm kind of waiting for that big Kyle Henke game. It just feels it feels like in the current offense that's not really his role to take. Like he he's his role is just being a very efficient, reliable downfield cutter with throws. Like he's still playing great. Uh, I I don't know. It's it's hard to see him
0: taking over with the cutting core that they currently have in place. I'm not even saying that it's necessarily a good idea. I think to be clear, you know, like I'm just some <laughs> schmuck behind a sure, microphone. Sure. Like I'm not trying to sit here and, you know, actually, you know, yeah, we're just saying what the, the very like well-coached Austin team should be doing. But I, you know, it's just kind of interesting to me that for somebody who has made a career out of showing up big and sort of big games that Henke has been quiet in so far as sort of statement plays this year. Yeah. We haven't had like a big hanky hook layout goal
1: yet. I feel like that's coming. It's gotta be coming soon.
0: Uh, Moving on to another doubleheader road trip. Boston is playing at DC on Friday night before heading to Philly on Saturday in what is, I think make or break for Boston season as they sit at two and three and, if they drop the game against the Phoenix um, by anything more than like you know a goal or two, they will lose the head-to-head series with uh, Philly this year and a tiebreaker uh, potentially for the playoffs. Um, it and just given that Boston played so poorly on the road when they went to Canada in Week Two, if if they go 0-2 this weekend, it's just kind of I think an indictment against a glory team that while they have definitely the talent to secure the three seed are, I think, becoming at a competitive disadvantage against the, the other teams vying for that spot, especially in Philly and Montreal, who I think have shown, you know, a playoff intensity this year where Boston still feels like they're getting there. Uh, it's, <laughs>
1: It's a bummer. Looking at Boston's roster this weekend, it's it's just unfortunate that they haven't been able to put together a top-notch road roster yet. Like, this week, I'm just looking. They're missing Cole Davis-Brand. They're missing their two offensive bigs and Orion Cable and Tanner Johnson. I believe Jeff Graham is also out. Yeah, Jeff Graham is out. I think even Andrews Olsen is only playing the first game of the doubleheader. It, like... It's just tough. It's tough to like this. Is, this is must win territory for them like this. This feels like their season defining road trip. If they drop both these games, I feel like there's a very, very slim chance that they can get that three seed. I just think the the math doesn't work out in their favor after that. they will be two and five and they still have another game against New York, still have another game against D.C. So I yeah, I don't see it happening for them and I, I'm just worried that that they are gonna drop both these games playing on the road. And two pretty pretty solid home home field advantages too. Like I feel like Philly plays well at home. DC obviously just stomped Boston last season that 32 to 20 win where their offense was converting 80% of their possessions. Their defense was nearly perfect. I like I, I don't see them competing well with DC. I think with Philly, there's more of a chance, considering that Philly doesn't look super fine-tuned yet. But but Philly does seem to be getting better each week, and and Boston is just sort of in this up and down like endless cycle of of having a great roster, putting together a great game, you know, competing with New York, blowing out Toronto, but then unfortunately missing a bunch of guys and I they just feel it feels like they don't quite have the depth yet to to afford to lose these top guys on these road trips. so I I unfortunately don't I just don't see it really happening for Boston this week and it's it's a bummer
0: yeah, it's virtually the same offensive core that went up to Canada minus Cole Davis brand um, and that <laughs> yes. unit. I mean, and Cole Davis brand was arguably their best offensive player that weekend. And that unit struggled to score 37 goals in two games. And it feels similarly daunting against a DC breeze defense that has given up a lot of goals this year, because especially after last week in Toronto, um, they're, their bottom three in the league in defensive line uh, efficiency, but it's weird. It's weird. weird. I tweet about it. It's, it's, the odd stat of the first month of the season, because DC's yeah. defense is still definitely good. They just they ran into New York we in Week One, who is playing historically great <laughs> offense, and then Toronto caught fire at home in Week Five. Yeah, um, it feels like this very well could be a pride sort of game for the DC Breeze defense, in that they're mm-hmm. going to want to get a lot of takeaways against a vulnerable Boston attack without Tanner Johnson or Ryan Cable. Cole Davis brand and Jeff Graham. And this was the AJ game last
1: year when he just completely went off offensively on the D line against Boston. I think he had what like five assists and a couple goals, a few blocks, just a monster with his touches. He was averaging like 30 yards per touch in that game. We haven't really seen a statement game from AJ yet. So yeah, I kind of wonder if this is this is the game that sort of awakens the dc
0: breeze defense christian boxley is active again this week after not being active in toronto and it'll be the season debut for Jacques nissen who has been fantastic in his first two seasons on the breeze has made visible improvements over his time there and i'm really excited to see how he'll play after his impressive college season and leading brown to a runner-up position at the college nationals last weekend it it figures like Nissen is just steadily on this improvement track of stardom. He's also such the
1: right fit for this offense and what the offense has looked like so far this year. I, I mentioned this in my Players Watch article this week. They have basically 11 guys that have been rotating on offense this year. Eight of those 11 guys are all averaging over 100 receiving yards and 100 throwing yards per game there's just so much cycling going on and they have all these guys that are able to initiate from the stack and stick around in the backfield when needed. Like that, that is, that describes Jacques Nissen perfectly. So whereas like when they added Johnny Malk's back for the second game, I believe that was like more of a question because he is more of a pure handler, but he's also adapted super well to this offense. I just feel like with all of these hybrid like pieces and, and you see, rowan mcdonald getting downfield so much more it's it's just so many so many guys for defenses to keep track of and the way they cycle is so efficient and i just feel like nissen fits right into that offense super well
0: yeah you start to even wonder how they pack it all into one lineup at this point uh especially given how well everyone played last weekend in toronto and in week one against uh new york and against montreal too you know they put up what was it 26 (laughs) 28 against montreal the other week um it it starts to be just how do you almost distribute the touches not so much because these guys are fighting amongst themselves for it that's not happening at at all with this dc team it's just no you want to get them into rhythm you want to have everyone you know kind of getting theirs and i don't know it, it feels like they've done a really good job of that so far it feels like everyone's eaten well but nobody's you know relegated to some you know helper only role yeah they're they're really just so deep like looking at the roster they're even missing
1: alan kolik reese bergeron is out for the defense jeremy hess is out again so i like the defense I, i guess on paper delrico johnson is also out they they're deep on both sides and i feel like just having the the depth that they have puts them in a really good position to compete at home, to compete on the road. Whereas just contrasted with Boston roster, like you can, you point to just a few guys that are out of the lineup this week. And then you look at their active roster and it's like, Ooh, like these, these guys are probably in trouble. So I, you know, we always talk about Carolina as the deepest team, probably New York getting there, obviously DC. Is right up there with them, and, and yeah, to me, it's still still DC, New York, Carolina, and Atlanta at like the clear top four spots in the league as far as depth, top end talent, really just
0: have everything going for them at this point. Another guy who deserves his flowers is Tyler Monroe and his return to this team. Uh, I think it got overshadowed by Rowan McDonald's huge performance up in Toronto, but Tyler Monroe completed sixty of sixty two, had almost. 800 yards of total offense, uh, three assists, and 11 hockey assists. I think that wow. ties Pavel Yannis from the other week and is up, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. up there all time for a single-game hockey assist number. Uh, he was heavily involved in everything the Breeze have done, and it's been really interesting to see him be a complete connector this season. You know, he only has – only, I should say in quotes – only has 14 total scores in three games. Um, But it feels like he's helping out a lot more than necessarily finishing drives himself. He did have five goals in week one against New York, but he only has one in his last two games and has been a lot more of a distributor and kind of almost a similar role as Rowan, where he can either become Mm -hmm. a thrower or a receiver kind of depending on what exactly is happening in that moment and in that sort of weaving chaos that the Breeze love to run. I think there's so much talent across the O-line
1: and and so much rotating, like I said, and guys touching the disc a bunch and getting downfield a bunch. Similar to Carolina, I feel like it's going to be impossible for an MVP candidate to emerge from this team. They just feel so... Well balanced, and I think those numbers, like the scoring numbers, feel like they're gonna vary a lot on a game by game basis. Like, yeah, Rowan had his best game since twenty nineteen, yet his role hasn't really changed so much throughout this season. Like, he's he is getting downfield kind of the same amount. He he did just have a phenomenal throwing day with fifty seven completions and over six hundred throwing yards which was like 400 better than his next best game this season. But I think this offense is just going to be impossible to predict week to week. I think it's going to be a lot of guys emerging and then fading from the top of the scoring sheet. And that's that's probably exactly what DC wants the offense to look like at this point. I think it's just going to be extremely unpredictable for opposing defenses to key in on any one
0: guy. So after facing DC on Friday night, Boston has to face Philly on Saturday. And while Boston won against Philly in week one, they will be without the main uh, playmakers from that game. Orion Cable and Tanner Johnson were huge for glory in that week one win. Uh, And it feels like Philly is starting to consider itself as a part of a contender in this division they played new york well they've been close in all three of their losses they're coming off two wins they kind of have this identity now with greg martin scoring everything on offense and alex thorne james pollard and jordan Ryan sort of and sean mott i should say sort of being the main um trigger pull pullers on a lot of the action for them you know i'd I really like the direction Philly's heading in, but they still need a sort of quality win and while a win over Boston would be a great start for them in sort of reascending in the standings, I you know, this weekend is something that I think Philly needs to do, not so much as an impressive thing. Yes. Yes, I agree with
1: that. I, I to me I'm I'm most excited to see I hope I hope we get a Cam Warner, Greg Martin matchup. Cam Warner is basically like, he, he has to be the tone setter for the defense. And I feel like like DC might just render him relatively useless with how efficient their offense runs. But against Philly, Philly is a team that likes to shoot. And I think Warner is going to have his fair of opportunities to just help out in the deep space and maybe shut down some of Philly's receivers. I, I don't think there's really any shutting down Greg Martin at this point, but definitely a matchup to watch there. Just who Warner matches up against. Because if if Boston does get some momentum going, stopping the Philly offense, then, you know, I still have enough faith in guys like Ben Sadoke, Topher Davis, Willie Stewart. Like they might be able to put together some offensive drives. Like Philly defense has looked pretty good at times, but I feel like also beatable in other games like. I mean, we saw in week one, it was really the, the Boston a- approach of going to Orion Cable deep a lot of the time and having Tanner Johnson do his thing against Philly. Obviously, without those guys, it's going to be a different looking offense. But to me, because Philly seems to be somewhat up and down in terms of their offensive efficiency, that's that's like the... That's, I guess that I would say that's the best spot Boston could make a difference against Philly and, and really push this game in their favor is if that defense can do enough to limit the Philly offense.
0: But when has Boston's defense ever, you know, quote unquote done enough in that sense?
1: <laughs> they They tend not to, but that's agree. why
0: I, the
1: pressure is on Warner this week.
0: I agree. I think if there is a team that they can maybe just get disruption against, it's Philly because well, Philly can sort of be lights and showcases as far as their highlights. You know, they don't always put up a ton of goals. They've scored twenty plus twice this season, but can right, at other right. times, sort of power down. Um, I think that's always. And they're been... never. They're just
1: never. They're never super efficient. Like when you put Boston against a
0: team like DC, it's like
1: no, I, I don't think their defense stands any chance against DC. But Philly is a team that that will take more shots. And, and that's that's going to be the opportunity for Boston this one.
0: Do you think whoever wins this game will earn the third seed in the division? Mm. Or do you think that Montreal will still factor in heavily enough?
1: Ugh, it's so hard because it's like, yeah, there's just so much inconsistency from all three of these teams. Montreal, by the way, very quietly put together their highest offensive efficiency game in royal history yesterday. I don't know if anyone realized that, but I believe they finished with like 76% on their offensive possessions. That was their best mark in any game they've ever played. And it was coming off of a three-game losing streak where they really like they looked actively bad against Philly when Philly went up there. I, I it's hard to get a read on any of these teams right now. I think just because Montreal has four wins at this point. Maybe I feel like they still have the inside track at that three spot, but if Philly wins this game, that's three wins in a row for them. And it's, it's just a lot of momentum for a team that does seem to be improving. Whereas Montreal is maybe, maybe a bit more inconsistent than what we've seen from Philly so far. So I don't know, I guess I'm just avoiding the question. I <laughs> I would say right now Montreal would be my, my favorite for the three spot, but that's very low confidence in that statement.
0: Yeah, I think going forward it's going to be which team can sort of get two to three wins in a row. I know Montreal did it once this season already, but that'll be the big... Like you say, the, the biggest focal point will be consistency for these teams. No three right. of the sort of teams vying for the third spot in the East have shown it in any sort of stretches this year. And whoever can kind of figure that out first, I think, will take the inside track for the third seed. We should move on to the Central Division and the discussion around you know their third seed as well. I think both matchups that we'll sort of preview here are going to be pivotal in determining the inside track on the third seed in the central. Um, Indianapolis will be at Minnesota on Saturday and Madison will be at Pittsburgh on Friday nights. Pittsburgh coming off of a come from behind win in Tampa Bay, uh, sort of capitalizing on Tampa Bay's inability to get the disc in the end zone as the cannon scored only one goal in the fourth quarter Thunderbirds rallied really hard after trailing I think it was 16 to 12 midway through the third quarter um Clint McSherry and the Thunderbirds O-line getting a lot of rhythm late in that game connecting on a lot of kind of 50-50 shots deep but good trust balls in a sense I think they they proved that they were able to win those throughout the course of the game Uh, Anson Reprimand played really well for the defense as well um, and Madison is coming off of a loss at home to Minnesota. Uh, they started three and zero, and then now sit at three and one after the loss to the Windchill. Both teams heading a little bit in opposite directions, and I think for both, it's it for Pittsburgh, it's a confirmation that they belong in the playoff scenario in the Central Division, and for the Radicals, it's staving off the continuing development of the sort of equalizing of the parity gap that's always been present in this division between Madison and everyone else. You know, radicals dominated the division for years. And especially I feel like following this windchill loss, that's just not the case anymore. And if the radicals lose on the road to Pittsburgh, it just feels like a further slipping of the idea that the radicals are sort of this enshrined team in the central. Yeah, this this would
1: be a a really tough loss for the. I like I feel like the radicals have to. This has to be a bounce back win for them in order to just stay on track, even mentally it, this year. Like they they are dealing with a lot of injuries. I feel like this is we're at a point in the season where it feels like things are are turning in different divisions. Like this is sort of where a lot of stuff unfolds as far as playoff implications go, and and every game is just that much more meaningful with a handful of games behind us at this point. This, you know, again, at this point, it's hard to call it a must win for the Radicals, but it feels like this this is going to be key for their trajectory because also playoff implication-wise, this would ensure that they have the tiebreaker over Pittsburgh and that would get them to four wins on the year. They have one more game against Indy. They play at home. And so if they win that, that would get up to five wins. And another game against Detroit would get them to six wins. So just thinking of, of the rest of their schedule at this point, if they can get to that six-win mark with tiebreakers over Pittsburgh and Indy, it feels like more or less a lock for that third playoff spot. But there's a lot riding on this game. And, and for Pittsburgh, too, like you said, it is it is sort of their last chance. Maybe not last chance, but a big chance for them to, to prove themselves in this playoff race and in my mind it feels like a pretty good toss-up of a game like Pittsburgh maybe has more top-end talent than the Radicals are bringing but the Radicals even with all their injuries they're still bringing a pretty solid roster out to Pittsburgh I worry a bit about the offense still Kai Marcus out Kai Lorenzo is also out and they're missing all of their hodags from the University of Madison. So like it's hard because I feel like the Radicals offense is often my my concern with them. But then they also did just have this game against Minnesota where they were only three for ten converting breaks. So like obviously that break percentage has to increase this week against Pittsburgh. I think it will. I think they, they'll they be a little better suited, but I, I'm a bit worried about them. I don't know. If you had to pick just a straight-up line or, or even winner for this game, do you, do you lean towards radicals still?
0: Right now, the second, yeah, but I think this Pittsburgh team, you know, always plays Madison well at home. Uh, I think that they're still kind of figuring out the inclusion of Thomas Edmonds back in the lineup after he joined the team the week before they faced Madison in week two. Um, You know, he didn't get a preseason with this team and he's the kind of playmaker that I think can give them a puncher's chance in basically any divisional game this year. And I don't know, you know, radicals are banged up right now. They're down a couple of their throwers. As we saw against Minnesota, they sort of constricted themselves in their ability to attack deep and that allowed for the windshield defense to sort of set in and mine the gap in the midfield. And, you know, radicals couldn't really score for a majority of that game. They were under 14 goals until a couple of goals late. And it just Mm -hmm. feels like with the radicals inefficiencies on offense, And if their defense isn't going to play up to its top-tier caliber at all times, there's just a lack of scoring where every team then becomes competitive against them. You know, like, what used to separate Madison from so many of the teams in the Central was that their offense held steady, and then their defense would just solely, like, vampire and siphon away breaks from you, you know? And they get two in the first, three in the second... And all of a sudden, you're staring at a six-goal gap against the Radicals team that's just sort of humming along. And right now, with the way in which they're giving the disc away or they find, I think, odd ways at times to turn the disc over, um, there's a couple times against Minnesota where they, you know, biffed it right in the scoring line, right in the goal line. Yeah um and yeah that's never good you know like it is one of those things where there are drives where they're weaving and it makes total sense and you're saying wow you know all of these veterans are clicking together and then there are other times where the power just goes out and nothing is clicking there's just sort of this endless uh rinse wash repeat of sort of five yard cycling passes and they they don't have an ability to attack into the end zone and I don't know. Anyways, I digress. I I I worry about that against a Pittsburgh team that has a little bit of a puncher's chance, particularly with, you know, Edmonds and Shepard and Ian Engler and Kenny Ferdella. Clint McSherry played really well for them when he's active. You know, there there are enough pieces to I think challenge the radical system defense at times in this Pittsburgh offense right right i i think that's that's what i'm looking at like that
1: pittsburgh offense is maybe an offense i would rather have than the radicals right now or like it, like it's not that bad of a matchup considering that pittsburgh has been a, a worse team over the past two seasons it feels to me like the pittsburgh offense at times can be a little i don't i don't know how to put it a little like individual based like it can feel like Silo. CJ is trying to take over the game or or Mac Shepard is trying to take over the game where maybe the radicals offense has a little bit more cohesiveness. And I feel like we see more cohesiveness from the rest of the central division teams. Pittsburgh feels like they have a, a lot of talent, but maybe it just doesn't all fit together so perfectly yet. And I, part of me wonders if that's something that will just come throughout the season as they're reintegrating Thomas Edmonds and Clint McSherry in the center handler role. Like, this is a different-looking offense than it was a year ago, and so I, I anticipate some more growing pains just until
0: they really hit their ceiling. Yeah, for Madison, I think they need to have a bounce back defensively and show that they can pressure teams. I felt like Minnesota was pretty comfortable against them a lot of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Although, I will say, I think Madison, yeah, they
1: finished better in their offensive conversion rate than Minnesota in that game. It really was the break chances that made the most difference for Minnesota. And then part of that is also like the the O-line defense for Madison. Like you mentioned, there were a few, you know, misfires on their own goal line that were just quick punch ins for Minnesota. But this Radicals team has always had <laughs> these these like natural D-liners or guys that play D-line cross over to offense and then become their O liners like like Vic was d-line for so many years like they have good defenders on that o-line and so i wonder i just wonder how much a part of those those breaks that minnesota was able to convert was just kind of a lack of defense from the o-line i do think pittsburgh's d-line offense is not anything to write home about they're also going to be missing sam van Dusen in this game he's not expected to play so they with more opportunities to I guess, get the disc back after turning it over for the Radicals offense,
0: they, they might be in a better spot to limit those breaks from Pittsburgh. That's a really good point. I think Van Dusen is so singular in how Pittsburgh likes to attack off of any kind of turnover that Thunderbirds... He's like their one thrower right. on the D-line. So Thunderbirds yeah. might have to spell something on their offense over to defense, and that can quickly change, I think, the outcome of this game and how matchups sort of swing one way or another yeah
1: yeah it's hard to know exactly like what what the point of emphasis is going to be in this game whether it is you know efficient offense or making the most of break opportunities should be a fun mix whatever happens
0: it feels like radicals are playing more zone this year than last year it feels like they're skewing a little bit further away from matchup defense it felt like in recent years they were sort of trying to go away from some of their zone identity and present mm-hmm. a little bit more individual matchup pressure, but something about this year and maybe lineup availability and everything, there's there seems to be a re-emphasis on just slowing things down with that good old fashioned zone. Yeah, I I like it when when their offense
1: is clicking early, I guess when and if. Like if they can if they can build a an early lead and hold on to that by slowing the game down with the zone. I think that's great for them. I just I worry if they go down early, then it's not the most beneficial, especially if, like, I don't know how similar or different Madison and Atlanta's zones were, but Pittsburgh did kind of run through Atlanta's zone last season, so part of me wonders if, if they'd almost prefer Madison to throw a zone, if they can get away with a lot of those over-the-top throws and aggressive blades that they like to throw who knows how they work out against the Madison defense, but
0: yeah, just another, another point to wonder about for the Pittsburgh offense. I'll say this. They're not exactly the same zones. And I think Madison is a little bit better at playing conservatively. I think hustle like to go for the block a little bit more. And so can get exposed mm-hmm. if they, they sort of over pursue and then leave a gap. Whereas Madison is you know historically the best team it's sort of ebbing and flowing and allowing you to think that you're getting a disc somewhere where really they're just able to reset up in a different formation that they like from that vantage point um and i think that they've done that really well historically against pittsburgh and i think that they did that the other week against the thunderbirds where they sort of over the course of the game disconnected the backfield play of the thunderbirds from the downfield you know you look at pittsburgh's efficiency Mm -hmm. numbers from that game and they're they're fairly okay. They didn't go wild committing turnovers, and Ian Engler did a very good job sort of providing a backfield center handler for the Thunderbirds attack, but they still weren't really able to score with any sort of consistency against the Radicals, and so I could see Madison employing a very similar strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's
1: nice is that it feels like Madison's always going to be in these close games because of the way they play defense, whether it's matchup defense with a lot of help defense deep or go into zone like there's a lot they do to slow down opposing offenses so I think a low scoring game I I feel like favors the radicals or
0: I feel like that's that's what they want in this matchup with Pittsburgh I don't know that they can help having a low scoring game right now with the way that their offense is playing to be quite honest I think that they just (laughs) have to settle in and know that they're going to play possession ball on O and you know go back to the roots of, you know, getting breaks and leeching teams out of any kind of uh winning scenario. Right. What's interesting is DraftKings has so they have the over under
1: set at thirty seven and a half. They have Madison as four and a half point favorites. I feel like if this game is gonna be held under twenty points per team, I have a a yeah, difficult that's... time believing that either one of these teams will win by five goals.
0: I mean, the last time Pittsburgh played at home against Indy, they had a tough time putting the biscuit in the basket. Like, they had a tough time getting the disc in the end zone that game. So, that's against true. an even better Radicals defense, something similar could happen. As you say, there's kind of that silo play that happens at times at the Thunderbirds where they have all this talent, but it very much feels like almost two-on-two two at times. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, we should just briefly go over the Indianapolis at Minnesota game. Indy sitting at 3-1, technically ahead of the Minnesota wind chill in the standings, sitting at 2-1. So Indy currently in third place, Minnesota in fourth in the central. And that's a bit of a cosmetic appearance, I think, uh, for right now, and especially after this week and the expected wind chill win uh minnesota should move into the top three as they will be probably for the rest of the season in the central um but indy always plays minnesota well uh last year famously in the game of the week there was that windy game at minnesota where alley cats lost and one of the craziest endings is there is that like flutter disc finale where nick hutton almost made the layout saving (laughs) grab to assist
1: such a wild sequence yeah Yeah.
0: and you know it was one of those things where minnesota was heavily favored and alley cats do what they do against some of the top teams in the division and that they claw around and they stay competitive and they make you not forget about them and it feels like this might be the matchup for them although the alley cats will be without keegan north who has been the pace setter for them offensively so it's it's a tough matchup for the alley cats who kind of need this win to stick around in a playoff scenario in the central i like i like that we say the alley
1: cats are three and one and in third place but it still feels like minnesota's ahead of the That like indy's still on the outside looking in of a playoff spot but look at their team statistics this season. Like at what point do we start taking the Cats seriously? I, I kind of suspect this two games
0: against this Detroit. game, two games against Detroit. They I know I, know,
1: I know, I know. I'm just saying, I think this game, like if they can put together the efficient games that they have through their first four, I feel like that's the point where we're like, okay, maybe the Cats will get in the playoffs and, and can compete because they're averaging 13 turnovers per game. That's fourth best in the league, fourth fewest. Their offensive conversion rate is sixth best in the league at 61%. Their defensive conversion rate, astoundingly, you know, is 71% when they get the disc off of a turnover and their D-line is out there. That's best in the league. Like, yeah, they've played Detroit twice and they've played Pittsburgh once and Madison indoors, but I don't know. Like, I think there is still something to be said with just how efficient they are playing. Like, I don't think they would have had these numbers had they had the same schedule last year. Like, they they do seem vastly improved and just just tighter all around, even though there aren't any, like, major standouts, at least on their, their D-line. Like, I'm, I'm kind of shocked that their D-line conversion is that high, but they do just seem to, like, get the job done, whether it is on offense or defense. So I, I'm i excited for this matchup. It, it feels like the first maybe the first true test Indy is facing other than that Madison game earlier this year.
0: Yeah. I think you might need to pump the brakes a little bit. I mean, this is still an Indy team with exactly one win against a non Detroit team since the beginning of 2021. I mean, I can hear all the efficiency numbers and everything else, (laughs) but that's a little bit of a paper tiger scenario. And I think, I think it's a little bit of a better
1: this year though. Detroit is better this year. And I
0: think it's a little bit of a rubber meets the road matchup, especially given who is active in this Minnesota roster this weekend. You know, they return Cole Jurek and Quinn Snyder, who were not active, and Andrew Roy, all three of whom were not active in the team's win in Madison. Um, mm-hmm. And the last time Quinn Snyder played the Cats in 2019, he went off against them. He was just scoring at will deep. And it sort of feels like that scenario at home playing out – well for minnesota you know like i don't know it, it just comes down to a matchup thing i think between these teams where indy is playing very well as a team but it's sort of been in the the sort of punchier underclass of the central division so far you know and they still did lose to madison and madison just kind of got beat at home by minnesota um i don't know i I worry about Indy being able to run in their size against this Minnesota team.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I to be fair, I'm not sold on Indy. I just feel like with with the efficiency that we've seen from them, like it is just a matter of time if they can put together some of these games against a Minnesota or Chicago that we do have to start taking them seriously. And look, maybe this is the week if
0: if Keegan North and Xavier Payne were active and they had Travis Carpenter. I think that radically transforms this matchup. I just think without oh, those sure. players present, it's such a difficult ask against a windchill team that's sort of now on its own prove it bent after losing to Chicago to open their season.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong at all. I I think the other thing with Minnesota is they don't they don't really blow any teams out. Like I don't think this is going to be a huge Minnesota win. And like you said, there there is something about Indy that. They seem to, you know, claw their way back into games or just stick around maybe longer than they should. So I, I definitely favor Minnesota by a few goals at least. But it doesn't feel like a, like it's just going to be a, a, route by Minnesota. But maybe, maybe it ends up being one, and then, then it's like okay, maybe this Minnesota team is really rounding into form this early in the season,
0: and I, you know, it's, it's, it can be like a really good momentum game for either of these two teams. One of the things that seemed pretty noticeable in their matchup last week with Madison is how well-conditioned this Minnesota team is. Everyone on this roster can run. They don't really have a, a weak spot as far as their transitional play on either line, and I just feel like that's really going to bear out well for them as they get into the mid-season part of their schedule.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I you think know, they... as other teams... As other teams kind of deal with injuries and like juggling lineups and absences and things, it feels like the wind chill, and especially given their offseason additions, like this is part of why depth prevails so many times in this league. Right. If you're Minnesota,
1: do you. I always want to come back to Abe Coffin. With with the guys that are coming back, do you think they just stick Abe Coffin back on defense for this game? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I think that they definitely put him over there and he's found a home there i guess and i think with the return of a couple of receivers they also maybe shift marty adams back over there and i thought he played amazingly for them in their week five win against madison he 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 was so yeah he was so good in that mid-range game for them where they could feel out the soft spots against madison's defense you know obviously there was the the layout goal to capitalize on it, but his quickness and just sort of feel for space, I think is so important for this team's pace of play that obviously he benefits on offense, but I could really see him being good as a transition attacker for them in, you know, especially alongside an Abe coffin. Uh right. I, I, right. I feel like I'm really liking the direction of how the windchill are balancing on both lineups with throwers, considering that was such a need issue for them after last year's playoff collapse. Mm-hmm. And with Marty Adams, like, yeah, he had that one layout goal. But
1: other than that, it wasn't like that flashy of a game from him. But it did feel like he was, he was just playing like a really nice fill cutter role in the middle, like you mentioned. And I feel like they have a lot of guys like that. Like, this isn't really a flashy Minnesota team. It just feels like they, they do a lot of things right when they need to. And I feel like that
0: applies to both their offense and their defense. I, I think that they're going to get some of the flashback with Snyder and Jurek back in the lineup. And, I guess, yeah, Snyder,
1: know, Snyder brings a good bit of flair to the one offense. One player sure. who I
0: continue to like watch develop to in this Minnesota lineup is Rocco Linehan. He's a captain this year. I thought, you know, he, he continues to have a little bit of a turnover thing. He's had three throwaways in each of the past two games, uh, but he he forces the issue so well and is so good at taking shots in the rhythm of their offense that I get why they give him a green light. And especially against Madison, it just felt like he had a couple of plays that were big momentum shifters. You know, like there was that sequence in the third quarter where, Eric blaze got up and got a nice radicals goal and it was still a tight game. And then Minnesota came back down and Josh Klein aired one out into space and Rocco Linehan went up and had an immediate response for it, you know, and I just, I feel right. like his, his ability to do that for them sort of make the play at the right time will be such a benefit that offsets some of the the mistakes.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. He, he's a guy that I still haven't like, just in my mind figured out what his ideal involvement or touch number is. Like, I don't think he needs to be like, you know, the primary initiating cutter. Maybe it is better off when he's just picking his spots, but you know, there's so much cutting talent on this team. It's, it's just interesting how the wind chill go about distributing those touches. And yeah, I wonder about his involvement this game And then how guys like Jurek and Snyder are going to factor back into the offense. But Snyder is very much a finisher. Like that's very clear to me. I think it's more with like Linehan, Jurek, if Bivon switches to offense, whatever, like those guys that can throw in addition to initiate, like
0: exactly how that, how that lineup shakes out. Well, that'll do it for this week six preview pod games will continue tomorrow night friday on watch.audl.tv as well as on saturday night with all of the games being available live again on audl.tv except for the game of the week between carolina and austin that game will air on saturday night at 10 p.m eastern on fox sports fs2 uh thank you so much for tuning in as always to swing pass we look forward to recapping this upcoming weekend's action with you next tuesday until then hope you consume as much ultimate as we do and we'll talk to you soon bye now